Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org slash donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. This episode of the Promo Kitchen podcast has been brought to you by our friends at Sanmar. Sanmar believes in the power of promotional products. Since 1971, this family-owned apparel supplier has been dedicated to passionately serving customers through trusted brands like Port Authority, Port & Company, Nike Golf, OGO, District, and Sport Tech. You can check them out online at sanmar.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring boundary pushers, rabble-rousers, freaks, and geeks who are looking to shake up the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of CommonSkew, and joining me today is fellow chef and longtime collaborator Danny Rosen, co-president of BrandFuel. In today's episode, we take a hard look at one of the most prominent yet controversial tools used to source promotional products today the RFP, commonly known as the Request for Proposal. Like them or hate them, RFPs now define how many end clients source promotional products. At their best, RFPs create a level playing field where the best distributor wins the business. At their worst, they serve as a way for end clients to slice distributor margins to the bone. In my nearly 20 years in the industry, I have not run into a distributor that doesn't have a strong opinion about the RFP one way or the other. As RFPs create so much confusion for distributors, we wanted to dedicate this episode to uncovering why RFPs exist and how to manage them effectively. To help us with this, we wanted to talk to someone who has written countless RFPs and counseled end clients on how to negotiate with their vendors. Please let me introduce Tom Beatty. Tom is the founder and CEO of Insight Sourcing Group and Spend HQ. His company works across all industries to provide targeted cost optimization and procurement-related services. Their end deliverables are measurable cost reduction and performance improvement. Tom previously worked for Deloitte Consulting and Procurian, now owned by Accenture. His client roster includes Univision, Johnson Controls, Lululemon, LPL Financial, to name a few. Needless to say, Tom brings a fabulous perspective for those of us looking to understand how buyers think. To provide some industry context, Steve Pons, National Sales Director at Staples Canada, joins us to talk about how he approaches RFPs from the distributor perspective. Steve is a longtime friend of mine and a past contributor to the Promo Kitchen blog. We are in for a treat today. Tom and Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Hey, thanks a lot. There you go. Okay, enough of my blabbing. Let's get on to you guys. So I'm going to start with Tom. Tom, can you tell me about some of the types of services you provide for your clients? Yeah, absolutely. We're a boutique management consulting firm, and our focus is exclusively on procurement. So we're probably the largest pure play sourcing and procurement services firm in North America when it comes to boutique consulting firms. So the majority of what we do is strategic sourcing. We've done over 4,000 RFP type projects across all sorts of materials and products. So we don't specialize in promotional products, but we certainly have done plenty of work to help our clients put in place trusted vendor relationships in that space. We've done everything from recently, we sourced $150 million worth of disposable gloves, and we sourced chicken and desserts for theme parks, just to name a few. In addition, we have a technology business called Spend HQ that's focused on procurement data analytics. We also have an energy management business that's focused on procurement related to energy spend and also optimization of energy. So it gets into green areas like solar panel projects and lighting retrofits and things like that. And then finally, we have a GPO business or group purchasing organization where we have common spend in areas like office supplies and office equipment and so forth 
where we've aggregated the spend of our clients into a single contract that everybody buys off of. Got it. And how do companies in your space get paid? Well, you know, it varies. As I said, we've done 4,000 projects. And in the first thousand or so, about half our projects were on a contingency basis where we were paid a percentage of savings. Typically, we would get a retainer up front, which was right. a little bit unique. A lot of our competitors didn't do that, but we felt it was a little more professional. Or we get paid by the hour. Since then, we've evolved and we have so much data that what we've discovered is it makes more sense for both the client and for us to just pay us for our time with a guaranteed minimum outcome. And so we do today, you know, probably our last thousand projects, probably 85% of them have just been traditional consulting fees. But we do do some pretty interesting things where we'll sometimes be paid a percentage of savings, sometimes we're paid based on achieving certain goals and objectives and so forth. So it can get a little bit creative. I would say we probably right now are operating under about seven different models at any one time. Right, right. And it's always very helpful to understand that in terms of what ultimately determines a job well done. And it's interesting to see that in some cases it's paid by the hour, in other cases it's paid as a percentage of what it is that you generate from a cost savings perspective to your clients. I've got one more here, and then I want to turn it over to Danny for a second. What are the biggest opportunities for cost savings that you see with the companies that you consult for? Yeah, you know, Mark, this is probably a good opportunity to take a step back and explain the way we approach clients, kind of the standard playbook, if you yep. will. And then I can quickly hit some of those areas. And essentially, we go into companies and our message is around optimizing their procurement spend. That's both in terms of cost and quality. However, the truth of the matter is, and I know you've always suspected it, <laughs> most clients primarily hire us because they're mostly interested in cost optimization. And so we go in and we do a spend analysis where we look at everything the company spends money on other than payroll. And then we create what's called a sort of a categorized view of the spend. We call it the spend stack. So, you know, for example, one layer of the stack might be promotional product spend, one might be office supplies, one might be metal or whatever it is that they happen to use. And so we look at all of those different categories and we try to develop a strategy for optimizing the ones that are most compelling and the most attractive. Okay. And over time, there are certain ones that tend to rise to the top. And so things like telecommunications, transportation, any kind of supplies like MRO, production supplies or office supplies tend to be you know, fairly attractive early on. Temp labor tends to be fairly attractive. For a lot of companies, promotional product spend is so fragmented, it's so hard to get at in the data that it doesn't always rise to the top as an early area. However, these days, procurements become so ubiquitous. I mean, we're getting involved in everything. I mean, we've sourced, for example, legal services recently, you know, for multiple clients. And so all the marketing related categories tend to be viable considerations as we're putting together a list of potential areas to essentially address, you know, there may be 120, 130 categories, and we might recommend a client 20 or 30 of them for an initial approach. Right. And then just to jump in there with a quick question for clarification, when you talk about a category that is of interest to you, is that usually determined by the size of that particular GL account or that amount that they're spending on? Yeah, that's a great question. And one just kind of quick comment. Generally, we're not looking at the GL accounts. That's the whole purpose of Spend HQ is the data in the GL codes tend to be budget oriented. Okay. They tend to not reflect the way the supply market is organized. So different parts of a company may use right. promotional products and it would hit their relevant GL budget area issues but it wouldn't be consolidated. So we take all that data out and we reorient it based on the way the supply market is organized. So we'd actually create a category of perhaps marketing and a subcategory of promotional products. Got it. Yeah. But anyway, the way it rises to the top is once we get it into that form, there could be tremendous vendor fragmentation. So for example, somebody might be using 25, 30 different vendors for promotional products across their organization. And that clearly suggests an opportunity for consolidation, not only for cost savings, but also for better management of the program. I can give you some examples later, if you like, of what I've seen programs gone wildly awry. We've got some pretty funny stories about that. But that's just one of the elements. Another element is we do interviews after we have the data to go ask people, hey, how did you establish your relationship with your promotional products vendor? And often we'll hear, well, you know, we've worked with them for 20 years. We've never really taken them out for bid. Or we might hear, well, every year we take it out to bid and these are the two people we go to. And you know, there's a lot of kind of conceptual depth we can get into if you'd like to as to why we can identify something as an opportunity based simply on a five minute conversation. But those are two of the more prominent, the interview right. and the fragmentation. Yeah. Well, let's definitely earmark that and we can get into that later because I think that our listeners would be super interested to understand how you as representing a procurement mindset thinks about that. 
because I think it gives some very useful context. So we'll get to that in a sec. Over to you, Danny. Yeah. So two shout outs. One is to our alma mater, Tom, UNC, Chapel Hill. Go Tar Heels. Go Tar Heels. Um, nice to reconnect with you. Yeah, in this manner. And then also a shout out to Marshall Lande with Tango Partners, who works in our space and helps distributors with RFPs that come in so that they can get them tight and right and win that business. And she's helped frame some of these questions that we've come up with. But I, I was reading on your website um, into branding, and, and I love your powerful tagline where you're talking about who insight sourcing serves. And you say, our clients vary, our results don't. And I just, I love that. And so my question for you is, what do you consider as the results? You know, is it only financial? And I think you've talked a little bit about that. But I want to get more specific into the case of industries in the creative space, which I think promotional products have long been seen as a high commodity ticket item. And I think the industry is starting to evolve. And there are a lot of players in the space who, who have already evolved. And so in the case of industries in the creative space, like the promotional products industry is going, can it be or is it ever the right partner with the best approach and execution on vision versus just that dollar sign? And if so, you know, how is that being addressed in the RFP process? Sure. That's a great question. That's a big question as well. So I'll address part of it and then we'll take a pause. We can continue on if you want. But essentially looking at promotional products specifically and really anything in marketing where you blend some sort of fee or product with a creative service, right? You know, you're not going to buy the cheapest, hire the cheapest advertising agency. You're going to buy the, you know, you're going to hire the, the person with the best ideas that hopefully is a reasonable cost structure as well. And so in the promotional product space, you've got to take into consideration, you know, the quality of the products, obviously, which in, in at least from my experience of promotional products, most people have access to similar portfolio of goods, but it's really the ideas and the proposals for how you can leverage promotional products. I mean, essentially, if you have a budget, how do you make it go as far as possible to achieve your ultimate goal? And most of our clients leverage promotional products, as you know, to gain new customers, to develop customer loyalty, to develop branding. Yeah, they have a very specific purpose in mind. They're not simply going out to try to buy coffee mugs or you know the cool new widget or whatever they can give away at a trade show. There's, there's more to it than that. And so what we essentially do when we do an RFP is we have a qualitative and a quantitative component of that. And so in the written portion of an RFP, you know, we certainly want to get pricing. We want to get it locked in, dialed in, buttoned up, and super clear. And I can explain more in a little bit, if you'd like, as to our philosophy around pricing and low price versus a fair price and all those things you know, we could go into great depth about. But the qualitative side, part of it is about your company and your ability to execute. We have a lot of companies that are national or global and you know, distribution becomes a big deal and salespeople you know, aren't the best planners and they may need their promotional products the next day. And so the location of your fulfillment operations and you know, your ability to kit things together, all those become highly relevant and important for certain clients. And our job is to figure out specifically what the requirements are for the client and ask those, right? So that's kind of the blocking and tackling of the non-price side. But beyond that are the intangibles and that's the creative side. That is, you know, Danny, you're going to come in and you're going to bring me an idea so that I don't ju look just like everybody else at the trade show, right? I don't have last year's cool product and, you know, the Yeti mug or whatever, I guess was last year's, you know, I'm not using that two or three years in a row. I'm coming up with something really neat and interesting and engaging that reflects the brand I'm trying to portray, right? So what is your ability to do that? And so as part of an RFP process, we almost always have vendor presentations. So after we get the bids, you know, essentially a down selection is made largely based on either relationship the vendor already has with the client, our knowledge of the vendor that makes us think that they could be a good fit or what you put into the RFP response based on price and based on the qualitative stuff. And then that vendor presentation becomes very, very critical and important. And every RFP process you have may not include this component, but every really good one should include this component. And so the way we would do it is let's say a brand fuel is coming in to present to one of our clients we would send you a list that says, here's what we want you to cover. Here's essentially a script and specific to brand fuel. Here's three concerns we have about your proposal and about your business, or perhaps the company had an experience with you in the past and they want you to address certain issues. We would coach you as much as possible to position you to be as helpful as you can be to our client. But in there is an opportunity for you to really demonstrate how you've got the creative capacity to make an impact on our business. So if I spend a dollar with you, yeah, I may get that coffee mug a little cheaper, but I'm going to get a lot cooler product, if you will, that is going to differentiate me. And that's worth a lot. So I'll pause there to see if that addresses your question. 
It truly does. And, and I just, I commend you because I think that there is a perception or misperception of, you know, our industry is being grouped into that just commoditized spend. It's all about price, price, price. And I will say just from experience, and we may want to pause, Mark, and ask Steve some questions from Staples around how much of that is true with regards to not working with an organization like Insight Sourcing that is actually guiding you know, the client to an appropriate RFP? Because I feel like in most cases, Steve and I are, and you, when you take on an RFP at, at Right Sleeve Mark, we're feeling the pressure of just price componentry. And that's it in most cases. Well, so Steve, to get your perspective on this, and of course, Steve, before your role at Staples, you were involved with one of Canada's largest distributors, Accolade Reaction Group. And so you've been in the business and have been in the RFP game for some time. So when I ask you this question, it doesn't necessarily have to be applicable to Staples. It's just really your general industry experience with RFPs. So that said, do you feel that when you're going into a typical RFP situation, that price is still the dominant driver, regardless of what Tom is saying in terms of some of the qualitative things being important. At the end of the day, if you want that $5 million contract, you better have the lowest price. Uh, Well, you know, it's funny hearing Tom speak. I think it it varies quite a bit on the customer uh, and who you're actually speaking with or the business that you're bidding on. But usually, in my experience, the larger the customer and typically the more sophisticated the customer there is more of a qualitative focus than a price focus. Price is certainly an important element and it needs to be fair. It needs to be, you know, something that there is some measurable savings that's there. But I can tell you anecdotally, probably one of the largest negotiations I ever had with a customer, there was a sign on the wall and this was years ago that I'll never forget. I still have it like printed out at my desk to this day. And it was a procurement office that I was in for a large customer of ours and the sign on the wall said the bitterness of poor quality remains long after the sweetness of low price is forgotten and that's Mm -hmm. sounds like an internet meme now but that really stuck in that pricing is unquestionably important but my experience is that what Tom is talking about the ability to execute the ability for there to you know have the capacity to handle the business you know, that's coming your way from the client side of things is absolutely important. But I can't underscore the amount that a fit is also really, really critical as well. If there are, there are some customer segments and some customer verticals that some distributors just fit better with for the personality of their business than others. We want all the business and we want to be a jack of all trades. But in many cases, sometimes it's just not a fit. And that's where the RFP, it doesn't matter if you're the cheapest. It's just not going to be successful, even if you win the contract. It's going to be a real challenge for you. I love the fact that you've given such a positive answer, and I completely appreciate where you're coming from, and I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, Steve, if you're able to share just even a general story about an RFP gone awry, like the the sort of the worst deal that you've found yourself getting into. And as you say, you don't have to get into specifics, but just what you learned from that. It may have been earlier in your career where you went in and you were overzealously pitching some business, you earned it, and then ultimately, you know, found yourself really paying for it after you landed that particular contract. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you personally, in my experience, I'd say, you know, early on when, you know, the company was smaller size, younger organization, and we wanted to win business, you know, and really grow. We were pitching on everything. We were bidding on everything and even situations where we kind of knew it might not have been a fit for us. And yeah, there's been a couple where I would say to you, you know, we've done the RFP and we've kind of held our breath and won the business. And I can't say to you, well, we won it and we won it to the point where we're losing money on the business and it becomes a financial nightmare. Really, I think the RFPs where they're won or relationships that are forged with customers that become a challenge is where there is a misalignment of vision on what the customer thinks they were pitched and what you're supposed to deliver and what your vision is of how you're going to either handle a program for them or service their needs. They might think that you're going to have someone in every major market across the U.S. and Canada or globally And you only have a centralized operation that is going to service their needs from your main head office. Yeah. So I find that's where there are issues. And certainly I've 
fallen into that trap in the past. And sometimes it's recoverable and sometimes it's not. But you got to be honest with yourself. And if it's simply not going to work, it's in some cases a better situation to be that honest with the customer and say, listen, this is not going to work for both of us. And let's figure out a smooth transition for you to find the right fit. I think people respect that honesty a lot more than just trying to win everything at all costs. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a great, very balanced answer. I've got a question I actually love to get each of your perspectives on. So Danny, of course, your perspective as president of Brand Fuel, Steve, with your perspective either personally or at Staples. And then of course, Tom, given your professional perspective as the person who designs a lot of these RFPs, do you feel that the RFP process today is broken? And if so, why? And what can we do to fix it? And I'm interested in each of your unique perspectives. Tom, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I want to start with Danny and see what you say. Yeah, I've given some thought to this question. I knew it would come. I I think it's probably the thing that just strikes a chord for me most. I, I have a sense that most of the RFPs that we see, and some of them are really lucrative and some of them are not. We know, like you were saying, Steve, if it's a good fit and all these things that are you know, important for us in terms of the vetting process on our side. But I feel like most of these are pretty boilerplate. I think they ask for facts and figures. They're like, what are your management's bios? You get sort of a questionnaire. What are your clients, your recent wins and losses, your capability, your strategic approach? I mean, it becomes real buzzwordy. Show me a case history, an example of your work. And it's really sort of plug and play. And in large part, I think that process makes it sort of a beauty contest in a way. And so I'm not bullish on RFPs, although when I listen to you talk, Tom, I get all excited because I think you're doing the right things over there guiding companies. But I think what I'm actually seeing is very different than that. And I think companies who you're working with, Tom, and who contact us directly, they need to find innovators, not commodity brokers. And I think that's really important because you know, you asked the question, Mark, how do you change from, you know, this commodity mentality if there really is an opportunity to be creative? And how would you blow up the current RFP and make it better? And so I have a few thoughts on that. The first one is, you know, I think having a key question in there or two as relevant to our industry makes a lot of sense. And to me, two key questions would be one is, you know, how are you going to help grow our business? You know, how are you going to do that? And the second is, how are you going to help us recognize our team? I think those are two core areas that promotional products can help. And I think that allows people to be, or companies to be very creative in addressing that. I think hiring an independent partner like Insight Sourcing that has that in-depth knowledge of the industry and the players in it, I think that will help these companies with their understanding of, of the candidates' capabilities. And that will take some pressure off of them because they're probably not good at that. I've always thought if companies facilitated like a workshop where it's in person, and I know there's a resource issue here. But a workshop where a candidate's leadership and the day-to-day teams get together and they actually sit in a room and they evaluate how a company might develop strategy and creative work, how they think, how quickly they think, how passionate they might be about their business and that industry. I think you'll find out pretty quickly whether it's a good fit or not. And it's a lot easier to do something like that and figure it out than to do it on paper. And it's just not as a conventional process. And I think Doing that, it mirrors how I think we as marketers and promotional products distributors need to go to market. And so it paints a real clear picture, I think, for strengths and weaknesses versus, again, this this paper thing. And then the last thing I want to mention is I think it's absurd, completely absurd, that companies do not share budgets. They sort of reverse engineer it. And I think the company's goal should be determined how much they're going to spend and how much, and Tom, you said this earlier, how much can the vendor you know, do for that budget? The cat and mouse game that we feel in a lot of these RFP processes, where they hope the vendors like slash their prices to come under budget, it just really breaks down, I think, what ultimately is the truth and what they're trying to get. And I don't think they realize that. It's about cost savings and not looking at the bigger picture in terms of what they can get out of it. How can they grow their business and recognize their people? You're full. Yeah. I love it. Steve, why don't you go? And then I want Tom to respond to what each of you guys have had to say, because he's got that outside perspective. So Steve, again, what do you feel, if anything, is broken about today's RFP process? What I can certainly echo what Danny's saying. I think for me, the RFP process, there are absolutely some RFPs out there that are boilerplate that are fairly standardized. And certainly it's evident with some organizations that they're repurposing a different RFP document. It's actually encouraging when you're a distributor or somebody looking at an RFP that there are some questions in it that are, you know, very specific to our industry or very specific to our business, or even in some cases, 
specific to staples or brand fuel, and they've done a bit of research on who they're sending the RFP out to, that really gets to the heart of things. But to me, the rubber meets the road when you get in front of the client, have a conversation, show them who you are, you've got a presentation that you're doing, and really kind of make your case if you want the business and you think it's a good fit, you tell them why and you tell them what's compelling about working with your organization versus somebody else. And you get a sense if there's that fit at that time, but the RFP is almost a a bit of a, I don't want to say a means to an end, but it's certainly in my opinion, it feels like they're making sure there's a competency level that's there, making sure that there is some acceptance of terms and things of that nature that's important to the organization. But beyond that, We're in such a relationship-driven business, and there's so much interaction with the different players at the table. You've got to be face-to-face. You have to have conversations. You have to talk about how you'd handle their business and how you'd, you know, take care of achieving their goals and what they want to do, and also demonstrate that you've done some research on their organization and what's important to them. You know, to me, that's more important than the RFP document itself, but as a process, I think it absolutely can be improved. It's not necessarily completely broken, but certainly there are some organizations that are way better at it than others. Right. Tom, what say you, my friend? Well, I'm a high priest of the procurement church, so I certainly uh, I certainly appreciate the RFP and, and so forth. But just like any religion, there's good practitioners and not so good practitioners. And so I think there's a right way to leverage an RFP and there's sort of a poor way. And we see this very frequently in the space. And so I, I kind of feel your pain we occasionally receive RFPs as well for our services. And there's nothing worse than being beat over the head with one like a, you know, a blunt object and have it to be you know, essentially a remote control <laughs> process where there's no opportunity to demonstrate differentiation. There's no opportunity to engage face-to-face. You know, that, that's not the right way to do it because the relationship's not going to happen that way, right? I mean, if you actually end up doing business together, you're going to be working face-to-face. You're going to be engaged. There's going to be gray area. And so you have to allow for you know, that part of the process. If you don't mind, if we just take a step back, what I'm a huge believer in, kind of to the extent of having seen it work 4,000 times in a row, is the strategic sourcing process. And within the strategic sourcing process, the RFP is a component of that, right? It's not the entire process. There's other pieces on the front end. There's extensive data yeah. development and analytics. To your point, Danny, about being able to share a budget. Some companies don't share it because they have no idea what it is <laughs> and they don't, or they don't have one or they don't know their historical spend. And so a lot of the work we do, I'd say 30%, is simply trying to understand what the historical spend looks like and then trying to match that to what they think they'll do in the future so that we can develop something to bid on you know, that's comprehensive and that's clear. And then there's certainly components after the RFP that are extensive, you know, all the way down to contracting and establishing the relationship norms and the way it's going to be measured and managed. Right. So those are all pieces of the process. But if you think about what the sourcing process is designed to do, I think most people misinterpret it and misunderstand it. You know, certainly cost savings is a big deal. Our website says, you know, our results don't vary. And our results typically are measured as a return on investment. So they pay us a fee, they get a return. And often that's in the form of savings. I mean, we certainly market that. We talk about it. It's a big part of our value proposition. It's the reason we're hired is because people want savings. And that's just the unfortunate reality of business, right? It'd be great if everybody paid us, you know, twice what we normally charge it, you know, and that kind of thing would be awesome. But unfortunately, we're all in this kind of efficient market economy where we have competition and so forth. But in my view, the strategic sourcing process is designed to do a couple of things. One is to find, you know, a good fit, to Steve's point, between the vendor and the client. And that fit has a lot to do with relationship. It has a lot to do with capability matching and mapping. It has a lot to do with level of commitment and competency and all those kind of things. The cost is a significant factor. And there's certain companies that in certain situations are just really well designed to be efficient and to be streamlined and to be you know, financially a better fit. So for example, you can have a supplier that in one case is able to be really competitive price-wise and another they're not. You know, So for example, perhaps a company that's based purely on the East Coast it may be very expensive for you to service the West Coast because you got to ship stuff a really long way. You got to fly out there and your costs are just out of whack. Your cost model doesn't make sense. So a big part of the sourcing process is trying to map that. Probably a, a really good example is like in the printing space. If I want to order, uh, you guys print products, so this should resonate. But if I want to order a certain type of brochure or something like that, there's certain people that have the right printing press for whom that's a really efficient job. And so if I want 10,000, that run length is really compelling. I can do it four across. I've got, you know, a four color press, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
And so it's about trying to find that right fit for that specific job and then also all the qualitative aspects. So that's what this process is supposed to do. Where the RFP is used poorly is where, A, you don't give the vendor a lot of information, which we completely disagree with because the vendor is the one who's ultimately going to deliver the value. And the less you know, the more you hedge, right? The less you know, the higher price you need to charge because you don't know what you're getting into and you don't want to get in a really tough situation. The thing I hate, I, I really hate about RFPs is when they ask you for a massive amount of information. So let's say you send out an RFP to 30 promotional products vendors and it takes you know a dozen hours to fill out. I mean, you essentially bring down the GDP of the whole country just to simply get a bunch of information you're not going to read anyway. So that first round of that RFP, from our perspective, <laughs> yep. is, you know, what are the minimum information you need simply to get to the next round, not to select a vendor? I just want to know, basically, can you service the West Coast? I mean, do, do you have customers that look like us? You know, what kind of access do you have to products and so forth? And so then the next round gets deeper and deeper so that as you're asked to invest more in the process, you have a greater and greater opportunity to actually win the business. You're pre-qualified and all that. And then when we get together face-to-face, you've got the opportunity to talk about whatever it is you think differentiates you. So the RFP process is really just a discipline. It's a way of organizing information. And the ideal way is to create a level playing field. Because as much as you hate the RFP, I would bet that you also hate going in to be asked to bid on something where you know the incumbent has a leg up and you're probably not going to win. And you're probably just giving pricing to beat up the incumbent. And that's the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to create a level playing field. And we spend a lot of time coaching our clients to open their mind to new vendors. Because what we see is vendors that are in the same account for years and years get very complacent. They tend to not bring the value add, not bring the creativity, not bring the new ideas. So those are some of my thoughts about the RFP. That's, that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's a, those are great thoughts. It, it, it made me think about a couple things that I, I'd like to add to that. And that is that I have a sense that one you know, mistake that I think companies make is they put a low-level person in charge of managing the RFP process. Here, go find 10 companies, you know, use our incumbent, and find you know, 10 more companies out there that can do this sort of thing. And then let us know what you end up with. Here's the sort of breakdown of what we want. And so I think there's a miss there. I think also the best vendors are being a lot more discriminatory on what RFPs they choose. And to your point, Tom, to some extent, you know, you're talking about, you know, the the GDP answer, which was great. I also think some of the best vendors are shying away because the process is so poorly managed for the most part from the client side. And, And that's not a good thing for companies trying to find the very best partners. And then the last thing is resource suck. I mean, Resource suck on our side, the distributor side, is it's incredibly painful. I mean, we put hours and hours and tons of time into putting these RFPs together. But I have to think that on the other side, you know, they put these unreasonable dates in place for us to answer these questions. And they say they're going to make a decision in three weeks, which is completely unreasonable often. It gets pushed out and there's delays and lack of communication. And, and I just think companies need to do a better job in terms of hosting the process. And I just, I wanted to voice that because I think that there's a, degradation on both sides. And I, I think it's hurting the process. And again, you guys seem to be doing a good job guiding folks down the right path, Tom. But I want to get back to promotional products since most of our listeners are in that space. And I want to ask you about how you're evaluating and recommending a service provider today. You know, and you've answered some of these questions, but let's get specific with the promotional products as a market category. Do companies currently look at promotional products as a commodity or are they starting to have a shift at all in their thinking a bit? And are you guiding them in that process to be a little bit less objective and being more subjective? Right. That's a great question. I think that the reality is, right, there, there's a product component and there's a creative component. And if you want to not be treated tactically as a tactical commodity, then you know it's important not to act like a tactical commodity. So there are certain folks in the promotional products field who really are you know, here's my wares and here's my product and I can give you in-column pricing, you know, whatever the case may be. And so if you don't want to be treated that way, you've got to act differently. And I know everybody who's on this call with me, I'm sure behaves that way. And so what we see though as a risk is when companies begin to view the promotional products as a commodity, they seek to disaggregate the creative component from the actual buy. And so they come to you knowing exactly what they want to get. And then it is a pure commodity. It is a pure bid game. And so so I don't know if that fully addresses your question. As far as our point of view, we've had so many experiences. We've had over 4,000 sourcing projects, as I've mentioned before. 
And in a really small percentage, in fact, it's a fraction of 1% of the time, the vendors will fail to perform. And they'll fail to perform and we'll have to go back in and help replace those vendors. And there was one time in particular where a promotional products supplier failed and they failed badly and spectacularly. And the way we run the RFP process is we don't select the vendor. We facilitate the the process. We create what we call decision support data, which is all the analytics. If it's a level playing field, it's relatively straightforward to compare vendors, both in terms of price, in terms of capability, and then the intangibles. But they just failed. They just could not get things done on time. They, they were trying to set up a company store. It didn't work right. You know, it just was a really poor execution. And even though we didn't select the supplier, we didn't implement the supplier, we didn't you know, even recommend the supplier to participate in the process, it gave us a black eye. And so they were the low-cost producer, of course, to Steve's point. Mm. And it gave us a really black eye. And so we spent a lot of time vetting that component of it to make sure the suppliers are going to work because you know if we have five bids and one is you know a dollar and one is you know a dollar 85 we're not necessarily going to recommend the dollar person we're going to recommend the one that has the most sustainable benefits over the duration of the relationship and that might be the one who's somewhere in the middle right mm, good answer so Tom, just keeping an eye on the time, I want to ask you one last question and then give you the opportunity for the last word and have Steve's perspective on the last word as well. So here's my last official question, then I'm going to turn it over to you guys to offer a last word. So Tom, most promotional products distributors like to make an average of 40% gross margin on the products they sell. Does this sound high to you as a procurement advisor? And how do you determine whether a vendor's margin is too high? I know you've touched on this throughout, but the reason I ask this question is that 40% is a sacred number to people in this industry. It's what a lot of people shoot for. And I'd love for your hard-hitting response as to, Mark, it depends, maybe your answer, or it might be, man, you guys are making way too much money. And my job is to take that down to about 25%. So how do you respond to that? So my answer may surprise you, but I really don't care what your margin is. If you are running a highly effective, highly efficient operation, I mean, when you say gross margin, I guess what you're saying is, I mean, if you're making the assumption that everybody can buy the exact same thing, so you have the same cost and therefore the same margin, then that's a different question, right? Yeah. But if you're talking about where there's some variability, where there's, you know, some people have higher volumes and you're able to get better deals or whatever the case may be based on the concentration or relationships you have, this may be where I'm getting the point where I don't fully understand some of the underlying workings of your industry. But I really don't care what margin you make. I care a lot more about the net price delivered to the client as well as the value that you wrap around that price. And yep. the reason for that is, so, you know, for example, I negotiated with a, a company that did uh, print and mail, you know, like statements and so forth. And the guy came in and said, look, we provide value-based pricing. And my answer to him was, that's too bad because this is a market-based pricing exercise, right? You know, I really, you know, I don't, it, it, ultimately we're standardizing the value. We're saying, okay, this is our minimum requirements. If you're able to exceed that, we'll take that into account. But ultimately, I don't know what the best market price is. I don't know what the appropriate margin is in every market. And I I use the process to determine that. And so, for example, if you run a more efficient operation or you're a better negotiator with your direct suppliers and you're able to get 50% margin, 60% margin, but you also bring tremendous value to the company and savings, and you're better than a guy who may make 40% margins, right? I mean, price-wise then, you know, giddy up. I want you to make money because I want you to be successful and effective. Because if I break you down to where you're making 20 something percent, let's say, and your salesperson's commission gets cut and I call the salesperson because I've got an emergency and they don't really care to respond very quickly because they're not interested in my business because they don't make any money on it. They're constantly getting hammered due to the low margins. Well, that ultimately doesn't work for me either. Right. And so the, the ideal scenario is to find a vendor who just is so buttoned up and runs such a great operation that they're able to be price competitive and make money. Right. So, and, and thank you for that, Tom. I, I, I think in closing, I'm curious as to get your perspective. And I also want uh, Steve's perspective on this as well, is that for people listening to this podcast, what is one or two pieces of best practice advice that you would offer to a distributor that is looking to be successful in landing their first RFP? Great. Well, I uh, I can take a stab at that first, and I, <laughs> I I would say biggest thing for me is know who you are, know the value that you bring, and know the value that you bring that is different from other companies that you think you're competing against. If you think you're simply going to win on just price, you may find yourself sorely disappointed. 
customers are demanding more and more of distributors all the time. They're thinking of us more like agencies without retainers in many cases. And that's not to say that you need to have a, you know, 200 or 2000 person operation to service any piece of business that comes your way. But whatever it is that you feel differentiates you and justifies the margins, if it's 40% or anything else that you're comfortable with to run your business, if you know that and that fits with what the client is looking for, then you'll be successful. But don't shy away from that and don't try to be something that you're not. Be who you feel you are and be honest with yourself. And if you're not successful, make sure you find out why you weren't successful so you can constantly improve. Any RFP that I've lost over the years, that's probably been one of the most valuable conversations I've ever had after the fact was, tell me how I can get better. Tell me what you know was missing and where the gap was because I really thought that was a good fit with our organizations and I would have loved to work together. And I, I want that opportunity in the future. And I'll just jump in quickly and say that's such a brilliant thing to say, Steve. And it's a great reminder because I think about all the business that we've won at Right Sleeve over the years, and it may not necessarily be as RFP intensive as say your business of Staples, is that every relationship has, and every successful relationship has been won based on exactly what you're talking about in the RFP process. So it's nice to know that whether you're a specialist in the agency custom side of the promotional products industry or more the program RFP focus side of the industry, that relationship and showing value and not necessarily driving at the lowest possible price, that's not necessarily the case. So I'm enthused to hear that. Tom, last word, my friend. I guess what I would offer is some almost tactical advice and ways to think about you know, participating in RFP processes and, and then also maybe a little bit of a higher level advice. So I'm an entrepreneur and I started my business, you know, out of the basement of my house. And so one of the things I did is I thought about what customers I wanted to go after is, you know, everybody needs to segment the customer base. You don't want to chase everything. And I, I segmented it based on the mindset of the customer as opposed to the industry, as opposed to the size. And really, I was looking to do business yeah. with people that I felt like would recognize the value that I brought to the table. that really had a need where I thought there was a mismatch between you know, their internal skills versus what I could bring and supplement their skills and so forth. So I think part of it is that I'd say to the folks listening to this, that the vast majority of your business you're spent are spent responding to RFPs, you probably need to change your sales strategy and begin developing some relationships more proactively, you know, first and foremost. But secondly, once you have a client, it's very important to elevate the relationships and to have multiple people that you have relationships with. So for example, if your client is in the marketing side, it's probably a wise idea for you to get to know the folks in procurement and begin developing those relationships and not just, you know, stop by and drop something off or what have you, but to also really demonstrate the value to try to figure out what their goals are and their objectives are and try to figure out a way that you can help them long before you need their help. So that when the RFP process comes along, it's a little bit less impersonal. There's a little bit more of a, a bias, I guess, if you will, towards you. And, and uh, we see that all the time where clients go, oh, you know, I'm with this vendor. I really just can't imagine changing from them. And it's typically because above and beyond service, deep personal relationships and things like that. If you're going into an RFP where you don't have that relationship, then my advice to you would be to minimize the investment that you make in that first phase or two as much as you can. You got to follow the process and trying to get out of the process will sometimes get your hand slapped. But do whatever you can to make it to that presentation round, which if somebody's running a good process, you'll have that opportunity. Although, unfortunately, not everybody runs a good process. But in that presentation round, when you walk into the room, that's where I have been in, in just hundreds and hundreds of vendor presentations. I've even done a presentation to the sales force at a big vendor that basically was titled, What They Say About You When You Leave the Room. Because it's kind of unbelievable the way the folks, the clients in the room interpret your presentation relative to the way you would like it to be interpreted. So I guess essentially what I would say is when you come into the presentation, you got to come in with your A game. You really got to have it buttoned up. You ought to have it practiced and you ought to be able to hit a home run. And the thing I see every single time that's not received well is when someone spends most of the time talking about how great their company is and talking about, we call it essentially turning your back on the customer. So turning around with your back to the customer, facing your own organization and describing it and talking about it. And you've got so much experience with your company, right? You certainly have a very different point of view than someone that's just learning about it for the first time. So that conversation ought to be spent a large portion of it trying to understand the customer's needs and really mapping your solution into a language that they understand and that they recognize will create value. And then, of course, case studies and references and all those things are really great. So those are the kind of things that we see differentiate. We see that the presentation 
is a huge pivot point. We're going in, the customer's thinking about going one direction, coming out, they're thinking about somebody totally different. We've seen tons of people stumble, fall down, you know, and do just a terrible job. So those are really critical and important pivot points that we see. Wow. And that reminds me of a quote. What is it? Prepare and prevent versus repair and repent, <laughs> um, which is just, yeah, what you've said. <laughs> but man, you are doing the Tar Heel Nation proud. Really impressive answer there. And I think I would just add one thing before closing this out. I, you know, from my perspective at Brandfuel, we've been doing this for 20 years. I feel like every time we go through an RFP, not every time, but most times we actually have a, I think we have something where we, we go through a learning process. We figure out where our gaps are, you know, what things where we're not competitive. If we're able to get the information that Steve was saying, where you do that follow-up, why didn't we get this and how can we do better? I feel like that's a learning process that's critical. And I just, one anecdotal, you know, again, rookie move thing early in the uh, brand fuel lifeline timeline. We didn't know our actual costs when we went into a very large RFP one time. And so the directive here for everybody is know what your costs are. We went in in a cost plus 19%. It was an account that we won. And we lost an employee over it because that person just got so stressed out because we didn't have the resources to help that person. And it was so, so painful for us to go through that, but it was a learning curve thing. And, and I guess I would just suggest knowing what your costs are because we really weren't making money on that account once we were paying out the salespeople and all the infrastructure that we had to build for that account. And then the last thing is, I think you need to be incredibly excited about the company you're about to you know, work with potentially, passionate about their industry, understanding it, wanting to be a part of it. Your whole team is excited about that. And I think that is really, really critical. And, and uh, so I just want to say that, Tom, you get the last word here, buddy. Great. There's one other thing I'd really like to cover, and that is that it's really important for you as the vendor to understand the perspective of the procurement person and where they're coming from. Because sometimes you may get notified of an RFP, or if you're an incumbent, you may get notified that they're going to bid out your services. And that may just be part of a regular course of business. It may be something that they do every three years. It's just a requirement internally. Or maybe they're even dissatisfied with your services. And obviously, that would be important to understand. But the other scenario that, that you may not have as much visibility to is it could be part of something bigger. There could be a major campaign going on behind the scenes to take out costs. And we see this a lot. And it's often triggered by one of several things. So, for example, it may be there's a new CEO or a new CFO who wants to make their mark. It could be that the company has been acquired, particularly by a private equity firm. And for many private equity firms, part of their 100-day plan is to launch a procurement effort, and, and we do many of those on behalf of private equity firms. It could also be as a result of a merger, or very frequently, it could be because of big miss on quarterly earnings that's just caused this intense focus on savings. And when that happens, it's really not specific to the promotional products category. So we, for example, might be brought in and we're told, hey, we want to take out X million dollars. And we're given large swaths of spend to consider. And so we may look at the entire spend, go through and do an analysis of it, and come up with recommendations for categories to include in this campaign, if you will, to attempt to you know, get this big savings. And the way we consider that is we look at a couple of different dimensions. And one is we're looking at how much savings might be possible in a category. So, for example, in promotional products, if it's a small spend, you know, it may not even make the list. If it's large, it could be something for consideration. And then the second dimension is the complexity of achieving those savings. And so we begin to look at how hard is it going to be to achieve them. So a high savings, low complexity, of course, is going to make the list more quickly than one that's more complex, that's similar. So for example, complexity could be that the vendor is so embedded into the organization that to pry them out is going to be very difficult and costly, and the switching costs are going to be very challenging and undermine some of the savings. Or it could be the contract that they have goes through a certain time period that extends beyond the objectives of this campaign. And so we wouldn't get any savings anyway. And it also could be that your customers are so happy with your service and so excited about you and the way you've saved the day for them many, many times that there's a kind of a political complexity. They're just going to be easier fish to fry for it to look in other areas. So that's one of the things we do. And so, you know, that's a little bit of an obvious piece of advice to make yourself irreplaceable and to make yourself highly valuable. But if you think about that as a strategy day to day to kind of insulate yourself from you know, some of these more aggressive kind of projects that come down the pipeline, you know, it's, it's definitely something to keep, keep in mind. The second thing, and perhaps maybe more insightful, is that it's really important to understand the specific motivations of the procurement person that you're dealing with. And a lot of times what we find is they are rewarded based on something. It may be on total savings. There may be a way 
They may be asking for concessions across 10 areas, but there may only be two or three of them that really matter. And if you can begin to, to get to know them well enough to say, hey, help me help you, and what is it that's really important to you? You may be able to make concessions in a couple of the areas and then in less so in other areas that creates a win-win because those other areas may not create value for them anyway. And so you may just be you know, reducing either your margin or, or some other term that's important to you. So let me give you an example. We, uh, of course, in some cases are a vendor as well. And, and we had a client we were doing consulting work for, and they asked us to renew our contract with them. And so we we're going through that process. And we had concluded negotiations that I had thought, and we we're about to sign the contract when they come back with one final request to increase our payment terms to 60 days from 30 days. And this was a big, big company. And so I kind of jokingly said, well, look, you know, we're kind of small to be financing your working capital. You know, you really prefer not to do that. And we, uh, we offered 45-day payment terms. And it was a very interesting negotiation and very unusual in that we had a great relationship with them. It was clear we were going to move forward with the project, but they wouldn't yield on the 60-day payment terms. And again, it kind of came out of nowhere. And so what I speculate happened is that the CFO made a pronouncement that all new contracts had to have 60-day payment terms. And that creates a particular pressure on the procurement organization that all of their contracts you know, have to comply. Otherwise, they're going to not have credibility you know, when they're asking the IT group to do it. And so suddenly, 60-day payment terms became really important, even more important than things that might have been more valuable to them. And so I began to think, how could we help them meet their goals without you know, hurting our cash flow as significantly as they hoped us to, that we would? And so that particular contract, for example, was a five-month agreement. It was a fixed fee. And every month, we billed them one-fifth of the fee. And we typically had been billing it at the end of the month and gave them 30-day payment terms. But the contract wasn't specific about when we build it. It just said we build them five times over five months. And so I proposed, why don't we bill you on the 15th of each month? And then we'll give you 60-day payment terms. And so effectively for us, we were conceding 45-day payment terms compared to what we had been doing. But for them, they were getting on a piece of paper. They got 60-day payment terms. And they instantly accepted it, signed a contract, faxed it over, and we were done. And so there's ways to get creative and partner with the procurement organization to, to create a win-win because the reality was this procurement person really didn't feel comfortable reintroducing this term at the end because they knew they had really gotten some great concessions out of us already. So anyway, we were able to, to collaborate a little bit and get a win-win and you know the company got their 60-day payment terms as well. So those are just some thoughts and ideas around ways to really try to understand what's driving and what's happening within your client. And maybe there are things that you can do and emphasize that will really create value for them and kind of solve a problem for them without completely undermining your ability to be successful and profitable. Wow, that's great. And now you've instilled a sense of sympathy, you know, towards these procurement officers. So <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not all monsters. Um, they're not all but, monsters. But Tom, I, I, uh, I wanted to, uh, yeah, exactly. Maybe we're the monsters. My goodness. <gasps> I wanted to just close by saying thank you so much, Danny, for all of your great questions and helping to plan the episode. Steve, having you on the podcast and also being another Canadian, so that way people don't make fun of our abouts or just me saying that. Love it. And then, of course, Tom, you just absolutely knocked it out of the park with offering a very comprehensive and very well-balanced perspective that I think has certainly opened our eyes and I think that the listeners of this podcast will get a significant amount of value from this. And we really appreciate that. So thank you yeah, so much. Thank you. And uh, have a great week. Yeah, you bet. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.